I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 42, we read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt from 2012. Jonathan Haidt was born in New York City and raised in Scarsdale, New York. He earned a BA in philosophy from Yale University in 1985 and a PhD in psychology from the University of Pennsylvania in 1992. He taught at the University of Virginia from 1995 to 2011 and moved to New York City's Stern School of Business. Haidt's main area of study is the psychological field of moral foundations theory. The theory attempts to explain the evolutionary origins of human moral reasoning on the basis of innate gut feelings rather than logical reasoning. He's also applied this theory to political ideology, with different political orientations prioritizing different sets of morals. Haidt has written several books and articles on the subject that attempt to explain his ideas to a general audience. So Jonathan Haidt is interested in why human beings disagree about morality, make different moral judgments. And in particular, he says, in the field of psychology, and basically in all of academia, there's a focus much of the research on how to explain what is wrong with conservatives. For example, he says, why don't conservatives embrace equality, diversity, and change like normal people? And of course, you and I have talked about many times in many books that it's not that we reject equality. It's just that we think there are other considerations, mm-hmm. right? And But the assumption of academics, he says, is that conservatives are conservative because they were raised by overly strict parents or because they are inordinately afraid of change, novelty, and complexity. Conservatives are so afraid of complexity. Or because they suffer from existential fears and therefore cling to simple worldviews with no shades of gray. You can hear the echoes of Obama, you know, clinging to guns (laughs) and religion. You know, most uh, moral philosophy and ethics focuses on what should we do. So, you know, utilitarian ethics, for example, what we should do is weigh the the benefits and the costs and try to do the most good for the most people, you know, deontological rules based would be like, there's a rule and that's the one we follow. That's sort of Kant. You follow it no matter what, you know, and then others, other philosophers have spoken about seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. Or I think generally we understand that most humans view like inflicting harm as uh, some is immoral in one way or another. But it doesn't actually, none of these philosophies actually describe why people do the things they do in the moral realm, why, why they make the ethical judgments that they do. And so Haidt asked the question, well, why exact, what are people doing in their moral judgments? How are they making these judgments? And sort of why are they doing it? So he decided to use uh, social science research. Remember, he's a social psychologist. He decided to actually use research to find out what really triggers moral intuitions in people. He focused his project on describing how people make moral judgments. So not just should they make a certain moral judgment or these are the moral judgments you should make. So it's not a normative claim. So he's not telling us what we should or shouldn't do. Instead, he's saying, what do people do and how do they do it? So he doesn't even make any judgment in terms of 
whether one particular mode is justified or not, or whether one's better or not. He just wants to say, if conservatives and liberals are different, how are they different? And, you know, what are the sources of the cause of why they're different? And that lack of direction and judgment in in his question is, is itself, I thought, puts him apart from a lot of other people in his field. Whereas we, you know, you see these articles come out every so often, you know, about explaining conservatism as a disease of the mind or, you yeah. know, like you were saying, it's only oh, they were brought up wrong or, yeah. Afraid of complexity was particularly amusing considering that we've spent 42 episodes trying to figure out what conservatism is and we're still not there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very complex uh, in a way that socialism is not, you know, but yeah, I, approaching this as in a, in a real scientific mode, you know, like trying to figure things out rather than trying to prove a point that makes sense to him. Mm -hmm. I thought that alone makes his work more important and and possibly useful to people who actually believe differently than him, Mm -hmm. which is something you you see less often than you should out of the social science Academy. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think for all listeners, I think there will be some real insights here (laughs) that, uh, that, kind of help you maybe deal with a friend who's on the other side, whether, whether more conservative or more liberal, but, uh, height comes to this with some baseline assumptions. He does actually believe in a biological human nature. He says nature bestows upon a newborn, a considerably complex brain, but one that is best seen as pre-wired, but flexible and subject to change rather than hardwired, fixed or immutable. Nature provides a first draft, which experience then revises. He calls this organized in advance of experience. So in other words, there is a, there is a human nature. There is pre-installed software for human beings, but it doesn't necessarily dictate, you know, every action, thought, you know, moral judgment for the rest of your life because experience will uh, temper that as will the environment and their surroundings. But to us, I think this, to us, this is pretty obvious, but obviously we've, we talked about before the left doesn't accept the premise. You know, they believe that humans are born pristine and it's only society and power relationships and economic hierarchy that create, you know, human characteristics. But so having, having this baseline view actually does make height, um, something of a heretic, uh, but he is definitely liberal. I've heard him speak many times. And that's the first thing he says is, I actually am a liberal. I voted for Hillary Clinton. He'll say, you know, I've never in my life voted for a Republican. And I can't imagine I ever will probably, he says. But but the science here is strong. And so that's how he gets it started. Yeah. I mean, it reminded me a lot of the, the Thomas Sowell book that we read uh, last season. And, uh, you know, it's we, we spend so much time butting heads with each other. It's rare to see somebody try and understand the other side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we try to disprove them with the logical argument, you know point out their contradictions, which politicians on both sides are always full of contradictions. So that, that part's easy, but it doesn't really change minds. And I, I thought, I mean, hate, uh, er, height earlier in the book talks about, um, the elephant and the rider, whereas he talked about the, the sort of, uh, instinctive moral judgment as being like an elephant and the logical mind being the rider on the elephant. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can, you can address your argument to either. You know, and both play a role in our decision making. But the elephant is big, and sometimes he turns one way or another, and the rider's just trying to stay on. And that's 
yeah, when you first hear an argument, sometimes even before you think about it, you say, well, I know which side's right in that one. And then you let your logical mind play with it a bit. And you say, oh, well, here's why I'm right. And, you know, we all do this. And the other side is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not that the rider can never steer the elephant. You know, sometimes given the chance to think about things, you know, we can say, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe my first judgment wasn't right about that. Maybe that's, you know, not really clear thinking. Maybe I should re-examine. I mean, we've all changed our minds on things in our life. I hope so anyway. So it happens, but I think he, um, in separating the two and it kind of overrules a lot in the enlightenment philosophy thinking of, of Locke and things where he would say that, you know, man is logical and everything is, you know, the reason comes first and the emotion is unrelated to it, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot in the early parts of this book, which we won't get into too much, goes through all the, the history of that sort of thinking. So if you're interested in that, that's a good read, a good summary of the sort of logic, emotion, divide. We talked about Jefferson and other people who wrote about it. But um, Yeah, yeah it's, it's a little bit of a shame that we're not going to be able to get to all that because there's so much in the book to, to talk yeah. about. But I highly recommend it too. I mean, the idea is basically, as Kyle said, the, the elephant is our real intuitions. And that really basically dictates how we live. And the writer just is kind of our, he calls it the, public relations uh arm of your your mind of your body and that that is like justifies all of your intuitions so why are the smartest people the most extreme on the right and left well because they're really good at justifying their their intuitions so but uh anyway so we we highly recommend that for the portion that we're going to focus on today we want to talk about his uh, moral foundations, because this is really his his landmark contribution to the field, and that is the the moral foundations theory. And so he says we have five moral foundations. The first is care versus harm. The second is fairness versus cheating. The third is loyalty versus betrayal. The fourth is authority versus subversion, and the fifth is sanctity versus degradation. We want to go through these a little bit to give us a sense for what what they mean and what they are. So for care harm, he says it's related to the evolutionary challenge of protecting and caring for children. Suffering of your own children is the original trigger of the care foundation. As a matter of evolution, mothers who are innately sensitive to signs of suffering, distress, or neediness improve their odds of ensuring the child's survival. So the scope of the concern varies, and culture and exposure can definitely play a role. The environment can play a role. Overall, liberal morality rests heavily on care, and he's going to argue that it basically is the central focus for liberals, but, um, so uh, care, but it's universalized. What we mean by that is we should care as much about the people in Africa as we do about the people in our neighborhood or in our own family for that matter. Conservatives on the other hand, they, they also care, but their focus is more local focused on, on family, on neighborhood and those who have sacrificed for the group. That's always a distinction. I've had a hard time wrapping my head around is how people can, I mean, you see people crying about folks I never met. Yeah. And it's, and on the one hand, I'm like, well, we, we should really be compassionate to the suffering of all of our fellow humans. That's, you know, that's laudable, but it's also, it's like, how can you live? Because there's 7 billion of us and probably half those folks are in a situation that we'd consider pretty miserable. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it like, yeah, when you see, I mean, he points out in this, in the book, he has pictures of 
different bumper stickers as sort of like signaling of these things in the political realm. It's like save Darfur was one of them because I guess that was Darfur was a was in the news when this book was being written. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I remember reading about that and thinking, yeah, it's it's terrible. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it is, but it's what can I do about it? As yeah, yeah. Just some dude in America, other side of the globe with no money or power to affect anything. So I guess, you know, I kind of put it out of my mind. It's not like, it's, and you know, like you said, it's not like conservatives don't care, but I see need in my own community a lot more uh, noticeably yeah. and stuff overseas. And I, I, I feel like if I, if, if we got concerned about everything that happened everywhere to everybody, you'd just be neurotic and, and really go out of your mind. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. And I've actually thought a decent amount about this because I've had, you know, friends who let's say criticize the church because they're saying, yeah, there's all kinds of service being done, but it's really only service to, uh, to one another more or less. And mm -hmm. there's all these people suffering in Africa and that's where we should spend our money. And I was like, from a logical standpoint, you're kind of like, yes, a human being in Africa is just as valuable as a human being in, in my neighborhood. But why don't, I mean, it's not that I don't, you made this point well. I mean, it's not that you don't care about them, but it's just, I can't bring myself to <laughs> to care as much about them as I do about, you know, helping my neighbor shovel his walk, for example. You know, like. Yeah, I think it's kind of the outgrowth of humans from a small tribe to yeah. a, a global culture. It's like, you know, we, we, like a lot of the stuff he talks about in here is things that developed in our minds, in our brains, whichever, as, as a tribal small people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, yeah, you could care about everybody in your tribe or clan or whatever kind of group that cavemen had. But, you, yeah, it's like how we don't understand big numbers, you know? Right, yeah. Talk yeah. about a trillion dollar budget. Like, well, nobody knows what that is. I mean, you know, we know that it's a million times a thousand times a thousand, but that <laughs> that's that still doesn't, our brains aren't good at handling those in a, instinctual sense. And I think it's the same with this care foundation. It's like, well, yeah, we're brought up to care about the weak, but it's, you know, if you care about everyone who's weak and oppressed, you're, you're just going to be overwhelmed. Like with the tidal wave. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it may, maybe that explains some of the neuroticism on the left. <laughs> they actually, I was thinking that as I read it, <laughs> they do have an ability, I guess, to care more broadly and deeply on a, on a universal scale which I guess I can't quite wrap my head around, but I can't, I can't tell whether that means that's, you know, better or worse. But I, yeah. I don't want to be living my life worrying about every, <laughs> every wrong in the world. Okay. But let's move on. The next one, fairness versus cheating. So he introduces this idea of uh, reciprocal altruism, which some of us may have been familiar with, but he says, we evolved a set of moral emotions that make us play tit for tat. We're usually nice to people when we first meet them, but after that we're selective. We cooperate with those who have been nice to us and we shun those who took advantage of us. The original triggers of fairness are acts of cooperation or selfishness that people show towards us. We feel pleasure, liking, and friendship when people show signs that they can be trusted to reciprocate, to, to give it back. On the other hand, we feel anger, contempt, and even sometimes disgust when people try to cheat us or take advantage of us. And I couldn't agree more with that in my own life, but he says uh, to, in the comparison on the left, Fairness often implies equality and social justice. For example, and we're going to get a little bit more into this, but the, you know, wealthy and powerful groups 
get, exploit those at the bottom and they get gain and they don't pay their fair share, sort of an equality of outcomes that we've talked about many times. We're on the right. Fairness means proportionality. We're going to get more into this, but people are, should be rewarded in proportion to what they contribute. But it's really interesting to me, you know, we come basically pre-wired to like those people who do nice things to us and want to do nice things for those people. And so maybe this also plays into the Africa, like nobody from Africa has ever done anything nice for me that I know of. So <laughs> maybe, you know, the monkey brain, it doesn't, isn't ready to reciprocate, but you meet someone for the first time and you take these first impressions. And then after that, it's kind of based on, are they nice or do they do something you know, selfish towards you or something like that. And I found in my own career, it is almost impossible after those first impressions to ever change your mind about somebody. And mm -hmm. I've, I've noticed about that, about how people feel about me. You know, you have one small hiccup like early in the, your relationship with that person and it basically will never recover. And on the other hand, you could, if it starts out good, then you could have a massive hiccup later and, but it'll still a lot of times still be able to work through it because yeah, I mean, I, th I think in terms of laying a foundation, that's totally right. And I, I've read before that one of the things that makes somebody most likely to do a favor for you is if he's already done a favor for you, right? Yeah. Which is not totally reciprocal, but it it speaks to this relationship. And you know, to me, that when I first read that, I'm like, well, why? If he's already helped you out, why would he help you out again? I mean, doesn't that seem like you know the logical economic human, the Homo economicus world? You know, we're always led to believe exists somewhere would say, wait a minute, I'm not getting anything out of this, you know, but here he's saying that this relationship has been established and people want to help each other. And it seems like the default is like you were saying, you want to treat everybody all right when you first meet them. So it kind of, uh, yeah, there's an emotional calculus there that we're not really even thinking about, but mm -hmm. you know, the kind of person you've helped before, even if you don't think he's going to, be able to do anything for you down the road if it's not like a you know game of thrones kind of you know machinations you've, you've established that that person is somebody who is fair and who is good and is not cheating you and hasn't wronged you and you know you've got that emotional basis of we're on the same side i'm going to help you out mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, yeah, yeah it's, it, this one i think more than some of the others is definitely one where well, maybe not more than some of the others as we'll get into, but it's the, the emotional content of this is, is important. People hate unfairness in a way that even it's hard to explain. Kids hate it. Kids are always complaining something's unfair, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely part of who we are even before we construct the logical reasons around that. Yeah. So true. All right. So the next one is loyalty versus betrayal. The original trigger, he says, for loyalty is anything that tells you who is a team player and who is a traitor, particularly when your team is fighting with other teams. He says the male mind appears to be innately tribal, that is structured in advance of experience so that boys and men enjoy doing the sorts of things that lead to group cohesion and success in conflicts between groups. And that includes warfare. The virtue of loyalty matters a great deal to both sexes, actually, but the objects of loyalty tend to be teams and coalitions for boys in contrast to two-person relationships for girls. Because we love tribalism so much, we seek out ways to form groups and teams that can compete just for the fun of competing, and obviously sports or, you know, debate or something. 
The love of loyal teammates is matched by a corresponding hatred of traitors who are usually considered to be far worse than enemies. And I think we've all experienced this and the never Trumpers are experiencing this in a visceral way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's worse to be, it's far worse to be a traitor. And, uh, in Dante's hell, you know, the deepest ring of fire is reserved for, for the traitors who betrayed versus the people who are just on the other team, the other side. All right, so he says conservatives tend to value loyalty, and I, I personally very deeply value loyalty. But the left tends towards universalism, so it has. He says it often has trouble connecting to voters who rely on the loyalty foundation. They they tend towards universalism, and what that means is they don't think there should be teams. You know, it bugs them that there are teams. They don't like patriotism as far as a love of the, uh, you know American exceptionalism. They'll, they'll be the first up to stand up and say. So every country thinks there's an exceptionalism. Canada thinks there, there's Canadian exceptionalism and Gabon yeah, thinks Ob- there's Gabonese or whatever exceptionalism. Obama said this. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it, it was, yeah, they, they definitely, they, they, yeah, they think exceptionalism is unexceptional. And I, I can't really wrap my head around that because I, I don't know. I think that we should be loyal to each other. I think it's important. It's not that I hate uh, the other basketball teams. It's just that, we have our team and we're loyal to each other and we, you know, we're working together. And obviously this esprit de corps is deeply enmeshed in our, you know, military fighting forces and everything like that. So this is the first one that we've talked about where he really just goes out and says, this is a conservative moral foundation, but liberals basically don't have it. So when we're talking about patriotism, when we're talking about rally around the flag, we're, we, we see this situation just this past uh, month with uh, Trump's uh, decision to take out that uh, terrorist, uh, Suleimani. And we don't need to get into the, the details or what we think about that, but it was striking, deeply striking to me about how some people responded. And instead of focusing on, you know, was that a good strategic move or not, folks on the left came out and, I mean, they had they had tweets or posts where they're basically saying to Iran, like, we're sorry. <laughs> Yeah, we're sorry for doing that. We're we're sorry that we're so bloodthirsty. And I'm thinking, I can't on my best day can't wrap my head around how you could possibly come to that conclusion when you know these are terrorists who are killing people every single day. Sometimes Americans, sometimes Iraqis, and definitely Syrians. You know, half a million Syrians are, but uh, somehow like it's not okay to to say you know America actually is better. You know, there is, and we've made massive mistakes in the past. Don't get me wrong, but. There, there is not a moral equivalency, uh, a moral equivalency between America and Iran. No, yeah. What, what struck me about that is, is when you go into a situation like that. And I'm not a big foreign policy expert by any means. You know, I had to look up a lot of who these people were when it went down. But I mean, just the the way you impro- approach that news item when you see it, which side do you give the benefit of the doubt? For me, it's always America, right? I'm always going to start out assuming we did all right. And if I, you know, if I learn more, you know, and I realize that maybe this isn't a great idea, maybe uh, this guy isn't as bad as they say he was. Now, it turned out he was, but, you know, imagine a different situation. I could say, well, I mean, maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we should think about how we make these decisions in the future so that these things don't happen. But I'm always going to start out thinking our team is probably right. Mm-hmm. you know, while being open to the idea that we might be wrong. I mean, it's not a, there's a limit to loyalty. 
I think. And that's that's sort of, again, to get back to the elephant and rider thing. I mean, sometimes the rider can steer that elephant around saying, boy, the people you're being loyal to, they're not great guys. And mm-hmm. sometimes that happens. But it seemed like on the left, as soon as that went down, they were giving Iran the benefit of the doubt, which I don't get because they're awful. I mean, they do horrible things. Yeah. You know, the, beside, beyond supporting terrorism, I mean, just how many of their own people are they executing for crimes like being gay? You know, things that <laughs> usually on the left, if you <laughs> so if you said, hey, a regime's executing people for being gay or for not being Muslim anymore, you know, they'd say that's horrible. But that stuff gets brushed under the rug when they're up against Donald Trump. And that's insane to me. I mean, whether you voted for the guy or not, he is the American president and the other guy is, you know, the Iranian president and the Iranian Ayatollah who exports like, terror every day. Of the you week. know, I mean, it, it doesn't mean that our side's perfect, but I feel, I feel like loyalty means you're a member of the group and you yeah. err on the side of that group. Yeah. yeah. You know, if anything. Yeah. And so uh, I want to do another side note, which is that, I think libertarian people, libertarian folks are just totally and completely missing this gene in every way. Yeah. Too. I mean, I have a few friends that I, I, it's just my eyes popped out reading what they wrote because on the one hand, I, I tip my hat to them because they, they seem to really do care as much about, they, they can't, they seem to care as much about the, the uh, Syrian rank and file as they care about their own brother. And, and I, they, I think they some of these guys really, really do. So I tip my hat to them on the one hand. On the other hand, it's just a head scratcher because um, my brain is not apparently wired that way. No. Yeah, it's like when you see people who don't like sports. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he draws the sports analogy. Yeah. And it, I mean, I've thought of that before, too. It's tribalism. Like, why, why do I root for the Eagles? Because I'm from Philly. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. just – it's not because, like, they're morally better than the other teams. You know, I mean, I've been rooting for them – for my whole life, there's been different players, some good, some bad. Yeah, yeah. But why? You know, like, why do we pick the teams? We because it's just it's because it's ours. Right. And now yeah. it's ingrained. And if they if they stink for thirty years, I'm going to still root for them for thirty years because yeah. it's, it's already part of me. And it's okay if you you and the other Eagles fans criticize the Eagles. You sort of you yeah. know, talk trash about them together. But, but Cowboy fans God, the Cowboys fans cannot <laughs> say a word. Absolutely, <laughs> and vice versa. I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's move on. Um, the other, the, the last moral foundation he identifies, authority versus version. And I should say really quick, he doesn't argue that these are the only moral foundations in the world that exist. In fact, he actually argues that surely there's more. But these are these are some of the very top line evidence based moral foundations he's found. So anyway, authority versus subversion. Original triggers are patterns of appearance and behavior that indicate higher versus lower rank. When people within a hierarchical order act in ways that negate or subvert that order, he says, we feel it instantly, even if we ourselves have not been directly harmed. Authority is about protecting order and fending off chaos. Everyone has a stake in supporting the existing order and holding people accountable for fulfilling the obligations of their station. Triggers include acts of obedience or disobedience, respect or disrespect, submission or rebellion, with regard to authorities perceived to be legitimate, acts that are seen to subvert traditions, institutions, or values that are perceived to provide stability. Uh, and he uses the example of smacking your dad as hard as you can in his face. Now, is that okay? Like, 
I think just about every conservative would say no, even if he's a jerk, that's, that's not okay. And I think probably a lot of liberals might say that too. Maybe they won't, but what's inherently worse about smacking your dad versus like smacking some uh, anonymous person 200 miles away. Well, there, there's a, there's an authority relationship, you know, and it subverts that authority. So conservatives find it much easier to build on authority, the authority foundation. The left, he says, often defines itself by opposition to hierarchy, inequality and power. So the common belief among liberals is that hierarchy equals power, equals exploitation, equals evil. So on the one hand, you have conservatives who, who maintain, a, you know, authority as a moral foundation. And then the folks on the left, not only is it not a moral foundation, they find it repugnant and they spending every waking moment trying to tear it down as you and I have talked about in many other books, tearing down our institutions and tearing down our traditions and destroying, you know, the hierarchy in society. Yeah. I found this, this kind of wraps up with our idea of, it's not just that they, that authority means uh, we want a, a strong man in charge. who's going to tell us what's what, because I think we want to justly organize society. One that, you know, I mean, we talked in many of these books talk about that, that, the confusion that modern man faces after the demise of medieval society where everyone, there was little room for advancement or change, but everybody had a place mm-hmm. and he knew what he was. And then, you know, we get all the good things from the enlightenment and, and individualism of like, you know, being able to not be a peasant just because your dad was a peasant, you know, and that sort of thing. We you know we, we can rise up and move around and move from place to place and station to station. But that that's that sort of mixing up of everything destroys authority in a way you know if i can move to a new job in a new city you know who's who's the authority figure for me is it is whoever my current boss is or whoever the new mayor of this city is it's it's not the same as a traditional society mm-hmm. where authority exists not just at the top but all the way down yeah and i i think a lot of the the, the feelings of enemy and and confusion come from the demise of authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To your point, authoritarian doesn't mean we need a dictator. What it means is we need to have order and someone in charge and someone who's responsible. And my first thought with reading this is thinking about student protesters, you know, who, who either shout down or, or accost speakers at the university or, you mm-hmm. know, in the sixties where you had students who, you know, occupied buildings I, I mean, that lights me up when I see stuff like that. And I, I and I guess yeah. I'm, I get angry at the kids, but I, I even more contemptuous of the adults, the people who are supposed to be in charge, right? Because we yes. can't have this barbarism and I, for the life of me, I don't understand why, how you could possibly allow that to go on. I mean, I would take them by the, by the collar and be like, you're done, dude, you're out of here. I mean, I, I, I like, well, let's have a little, maybe a little bit of mercy, but the idea that we're going to allow the inmates to run the asylum is just, it's mind, mind bending for me. And, uh, and, you know, and so, and then on a lesser degree, like, for example, like allowing children to just actively misbehave. Now I'm not saying my kids are the best because certainly they're not, but <laughs> I find it just completely appalling when parents are just, they, they see their kids acting crazy and insane and creating chaos and they just sort of sit back and smile like nothing's going on, <laughs> you know, like, no, there needs to be someone who's responsible there, you know, you are the authority figure, you are the adult. And that is just crucial for, you know, a society to operate. 
Yeah, I, I get that same feeling. Sometimes you see like older children, their parents let them like insult them or even curse yeah, them. Or swear at them. Yeah, and that just seems insane to me. Like it's not. I mean, it's not like profanity was never heard in my household growing up, but I would never say that to my father and mother. It just seems appalling, you know. And what well, if you and did? Then it was quick. It was and consequences. consequences yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like that's right. I mean, they're in their house when you're the child. They're you're, and they're the adult. You're they're in charge. That's the authority. And they, you know, it's good that they rule the household justly. You know, like you said, it's not just about a strong man. It's it's about you know. They're responsible for you, but that also means they're in charge of you. And it's like just like how we are to our kids now. It's the, the perversion of that system just is appalling at a base level, mm -hmm. and the, that he's he's really getting at that here. Some people don't feel that level of uh, discomfort with overthrowing that system, but uh, you, know, you and I sure do. Yeah. So again, here's another moral foundation that conservatives tend to have and that again not only do liberals not have it they actively fight it and try to destroy it and tear it down and i can't i can't i don't get it okay actually i said that was the last one there's one more sanctity versus degradation he says whether god exists people feel that some things actions and people are noble pure and elevated while others are base polluted and degraded that is unclean so it could be religious like abstaining from pork or it could be more intuitive like he gives the example of, you know, would it be okay if your family dog passed away? Would it be okay to eat it? And of course, I think most people would be like, no, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but where does that come from? Where does that where does that instinct, that intu intuition come from? He, well, he says it comes from this moral foundation of sanctity. These feelings of stain, pollution, and purification are irrational from a utilitarian point of view because you're just sort of that cost benefit calculating automaton and says well, well at least you got some food and it was free so that's good We're like no dude this is the family dog we can't <laughs> <laughs> yeah he says disgust is triggered by signs of infection or disease in other people so this is an evolutionary people develop this way because smells sights or other sensory patterns can predict the presence of dangerous pathogens in objects or people and obviously this is true you know we said for example like the the aztecs you know dying in mass of, of disease from foreigners coming in. Okay. So the psych psychology of sacredness helps to bind individuals into moral communities. And this is talking about probably the religious side in, in, in particular, it, it helps to have a shared sort of sanctity, sacredness of things for a, for a community and particularly a religious community. He, he quotes this guy, Paul Rosen from the omnivores dilemma. He says, omnivores go through life with two competing motives, neophilia which is an attraction to new things and neophobia, which is a fear of new things. And people vary, he says, in terms of which motive is stronger. Liberals score much higher on neophilia. That means openness to experience. So they're, they're much more interested in new foods, new people, new music, new ideas. Conservatives, on the other hand, score higher on neophobia. They prefer to stick with what's tried and true. You know, I think of my own parents who go to the same two restaurants their entire life, you know, <laughs> not super interested in trying the Thai restaurant, you know, down this, that, that just opened up in, in, in the city or something. So conservatives care much more about guarding borders, boundaries, and traditions. The Sancti Foundation is used most heavily by the religious right, but it is also used on the spiritual left. You can see the impurity avoidance 
in new age grocery stores where you'll find a variety of products that promise to cleanse you of toxins. It's organic, <laughs> it's GMO free, it's gluten free. You know, many, and, and you also have, you know, environmentalists who revile industrialization and capital, capitalism, not just for the power relationships and the economics, but also for the symbolic degradation of nature. You know, it's a humanity's original nature before it was corrupted by the industrial capitalism. It's destroyed people. So other examples would be, you know, particularly on the conservative side would be flag burning. You know, what's the difference between burning a flag and burning a sheet? Well, the symbolic meaning, and it has deep meaning. Liberals don't see it that way. Folks on the left and libertarians definitely don't. Like, what difference does it make? It's just a, it's just a cloth where you're kind of like, mm-hmm. makes a lot of difference, you know. <laughs> yeah. Or, for example, uh, Kaepernick, you know, kneeling for the flag. They don't understand why that makes us mad. Yeah, it doesn't understand why it makes us mad or what the why, why we should care about symbolism at all. Yeah, it made me think also, you know, as we discuss nationalism, like a lot of these things are that the that are only really valued on the right are things that contribute to nationalism. And I think that's why a lot on the left doesn't understand nationalism. And it made me think, like, is there any nation that doesn't have something sacred to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, whether it be a place or you know, a, a person in like, uh, like how the, the British treat their queen, you know, or is it, you know, or an idea, you know, like, like our American constitution, you know, I think everybody, every nation has to have something that is, it's beyond reproach, beyond value, you know, where you can't say, well, like, how much would you pay to, uh, bulldoze, you know, the, uh, the battlefield at Gettysburg or Arlington national cemetery. Yeah. It's like, there's no amount, yeah, you know, right, I mean, right. you, you know, I mean, think about Arlington, you know, I mean, every war, somebody's, you know, since the civil war, we've been burying our national heroes there that, you know, the, the logical mind would say, well, it's just land, right. It's just bones. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's a sacredness to it. that mm-hmm. I think even the left would, would, would say that, right. That's, that goes too far, but there's a lot of things like the, like the flag and the constitution and the bill of rights and all of the, the things that we think of as distinctly American that, that are imbued with this sacredness. And I, I don't think it's possible to have a true nation without that. Yeah. Like that's, you need that touchstone. Absolutely. That, that's what makes the nation different, you know, than just a, a neighborhood or a collection of people. Yep. So he says his bottom line conclusion is that conservatives have this multi foundation morality where folks on the left pretty much just have the two. He says everyone left, right, and center says that concerns about compassion, cruelty, fairness, and injustice are relevant to their judgments about right and wrong. So everyone agrees about the care harm and the fairness cheating. But liberals, he says, largely reject loyalty, authority, and the sanctity foundations. So liberals have this two-foundation morality where conservatives have a multi-foundation because conservatives endorse all five foundations. Now, this was an interesting finding for him and in many quarters, not well received because it's almost like, wait a sec, it's actually conservatives who are more sophisticated. But of course, many liberals would say, no, they're not more sophisticated. Instead, you know, they're worrying about things that should not be factors in your, Mm. in your moral calculus. So height as an extension, he also noticed this disconnect when, when he put, he put this original research out and he put it, and he received all this feedback and he noticed this disconnect between the two sides when it came to fairness for liberals fairness means equality equality of outcomes and what they want is when it comes to fairness is they want to see that 
everyone is more or less equal, you know, again, to a conversation we've had a million times, it just mm-hmm. eats them alive that there are some people who make more money than others. And they don't, they just absolutely despise the fact that billionaires exist when you have people who are on minimum wage. But for conservatives, it's not the equality that is triggered when we're talking about fairness, uh, moral foundation. Fairness for conservatives, he says, focuses on proportionality. People get what they deserve based on what they have done. People should reap what they sow. People who work should get the fruits of their labor. Labor. People who are lazy and irresponsible should suffer the consequences. So I, saw, I heard this interview, and I can't even remember who it was, liberals talking to each other, saying, don't you think it's better for people who work harder, you know, get up earlier in the morning and work harder to earn more than those who don't? And the answer that he literally said was, I'm not sure about that. And of course, in my mind, you know, I immediately started scratching my head like, really? <laughs> it's <laughs> it's yeah. it's fair for or for the freeloader, you know, the, the deadbeat to get the same, to enjoy the, the spoil, the same spoils as, as the, you know, the early bird and those who hustled. So what height discovered in this next, in this extension of his research was that for liberals, fairness really does come, come down to equality and getting equal outcomes where for conservatives it's proportionality. That is, yeah, we don't want people to have abs to, to go hungry, but again, to a conversation you and I've had millions of times, we are worried about poverty. We don't want anyone in America to go hungry, but whether or not someone who, you know, hustles and works hard and really applies himself and does a good, good job as a good steward of his resources and that sort of thing, shouldn't that person actually get to basically keep his, his earnings versus the person who's playing video games and smoking weed? I mean, to, to me, that's just uh-huh. basic and straightforward, but to liberals it's not. Yeah, and that's hard to get your head around, you know. It's um he he mentions in here that liberals like the idea of karma. But karma also has a retribution side to mm-hmm. it, you know, and it's original thing, you know. It's the in the in the Hindu idea of reincarnation. You know, it's like if you live well, then in the next life you'll be in a better station. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, you know, if we take away the spiritual reincarnation aspects to it, that's you know, in a smaller sense, that's what we're saying in real life. So if you work hard, you should be able to rise up. And, you know, to the extent conservatives are concerned about equality, it's equal opportunity. Right. You still got to put the work in. Right. You know, you still, gotta, you still have to earn it. And in that, in that sense, that's the part of the, the karmic calculations liberals ignore. Well, we don't want to punish anybody if they don't, you know, we just want... We, I, I don't get it. It's hard to articulate why you think everyone should have the same stuff when some people are working and some aren't. Yeah. And yet that, it, it, I mean, I've been watching these democratic debates because I write about them for work and it's yeah. Equality, equality, equality. And it's, you know, but what about, yeah. I mean, like it, it's just, it's hard to figure like, well, wh- to what end? I mean, how far do you take this? Yeah. Just, just get, just take all the money, give it out to everybody in equal shares. I mean, in a year, they'd be just as unequal because some people would blow it on the well, exactly, yeah. and some people would invest it or yeah. use it to build something that they can make more money with. You know, inequality is the na- the nature of a any, any species with 7 billion members is going to have some who are better at stuff than others. Yeah, and yeah. That's just how we are. And it's, it, it, yeah, this divide over things that we call by the same name, fairness, is, uh, it's, it's always been hard for me to 
get my head around. And at times it's really counterproductive to their own goals. I mean, I'll give you an example from my own work. You know, we're talking about the earned income tax credit, EITC. The idea really came from Milton Friedman, but the idea is you give Mm -hmm. folks who are on the lower income spectrum basically a subsidy. So you don't get a free handout. You, you, you're able to get the government subsidy based on work that you're already doing. So you're going to work and because you're working, you can get this basically tax tax credit. And it's a, it's a way to help keep people in jobs and keep working rather than quitting to get on simply on disability or something like that. Okay. So conservatives, Paul Ryan was a huge supporter of this and there was a deal to be had with Obama, let's say, for example, there really was. Problem was that there's an incredible error rate in that people are getting it erroneously. So a whole bunch of fraud and abuse, tons of people are getting the, the EITC without actually earning it. And so what happened was Republicans said, we need to fix this error rate and then we'll do this massive EITC to help all these poor people. But the Democrats said, no, no, we don't want to fix that error rate because these are actually people who are still not doing well. And so they deserve the money too. And I'm like, wow, you know, we have this opportunity to help so many people if we just tie up these loose ends and you won't do that. So it even, it's even counterproductive to their own, their own goals so often. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a larger, it's a, an extension of how they don't really see a difference between deserving and undeserving poor. Yeah. Right. And that, that, that the whole idea that there is a difference appalls them. And, but to us, it seems obvious, <laughs> you know, like, well, yeah, that guy is poor cause he can't work because he's disabled or because, you know, this tragedy has befallen him or, you know, just, there's a lot of reasons where somebody might end up broke, not his own fault. But I think to the left, it's, it's never your fault, even if it, you know, it really is. Right. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have. I wish we could go on and on because there's just so much goodness, so much interesting uh, stuff to, to dig out of this. Highly recommend this book to all listeners. That's it for Jonathan Haidt. We'll catch you next time. Thanks.